Hello and welcome to Stubbornly Optimistic, the podcast all about people and what makes people tick. Today I'm going to chat with you guys briefly about something very close to me on a personal level, gender dysphoria. This is something that I've lived with for quite some time. It's a conversation that's in the media currently with regard to um, transgender issues and gender issues widely. So I figured I'll put a conversation together for you guys about what it's like from my side of the fence. What is gender dysphoria? Gender dysphoria is that situation where you live with a set of feelings that amount to a dis-ease, a dysphoria, that's the meaning of the word, with your internal gender, contentious I know, internal sex if you will, um, how you feel about yourself, how you relate to yourself. Note I say self, not how I relate to others. This is about the person and how they relate to themselves. It's about, if you like, it's about the relationship they have with themselves, not the relationship they have with others. So. I figured it was worthwhile having a chat about that. Now, first off, first off, if you are one of these people, and there's plenty of them out there in the world, there's seven and a half billion people on the planet, not everyone's going to agree with me. If you're one of the people that doesn't, and you view the gender dysphoria stuff as something that's wrong, something that shouldn't be allowed, something that's maybe a psychosis, or there's some... Um, religious objections in there or whatever stick around honestly stick around okay I'm not about to preach and say that my way or the highway because that doesn't really get anybody anywhere what I'm about here is just a little bit of a window into one human's experience of living with this stuff what it's meant what the outcomes were um, there's much, much more to be said. These are preliminary things, and from my own perspective. So, gender dysphoria. Back in 2004, I had trained as a nurse, graduated 2006, and during that time, it became evident, I became aware of the transgender stuff, the gender dysphoria. Something had been wrong prior to that point. It was a drip-feed thing, a bit like Chinese water torture. And I was, to coin an analogy, I was a square peg in a round hole. I didn't quite know what the issue was. I didn't quite know what wasn't functioning. There was a bit of a thorn in the side going on, but I was a square peg in this round hole. Now, if you've got a square peg in a round hole, you imagine these two things, like a, you know, a cylinder with a square in it, and you rattle it round, it's gonna make noise. And that noise was my internal world between my ears. There was just this noise, this interference. So, Mentally and emotionally, I was always on a different page to everybody else. Um, 
uh, just there was something not quite there. Their expectations of me being one thing and being perceived as one thing were different to where I was coming from emotionally. So on that level, um, there was always going to be a bit of discord. And uh, so around about my 36th year, um, I took the decision to take some action. Prior to that point, however, there was some effects of this gender dysphoria. One was, um, as I've alluded to in my introduction podcast, I lost the career. There was issues around not functioning, not making decisions properly, etc. Um, because I lost a sense of my entire identity, not just professionally, but personally. How could I have been so stupid? <laughs> Goodbye, millionaire's row. Hello, room 12 of the Budley Salterton Twilight Rest Home for the terminally short of cash. <laughs> for want of a better description, you could call it a mental breakdown. There was just no processing ability like there had been prior before the Pandora's box was opened and my awareness grew of this particular issue. Now, um, so when we get to becoming aware, if you like, of the gender dysphoria and realizing that I need to do something about it, um, it's, it's an interesting thing to look back on your life when you put a name to something, when you realize what you've lived with unknowingly for much of the time, when you put a name to it um, and start to, to really get a clearer picture of this and you look back through your life to a series of events and go, oh, well, that lines up. <laughs> that now makes sense. Why did I react in this way, etc. cetera? Um, so it was, it was an awareness... I didn't have this sudden moment where I knew. I had a growing awareness throughout my life that something wasn't right and then suddenly there was a point in my life where my knowledge gap um, and my awareness of, of how I was feeling kind of collided, you know. And we got to that point where it was like, oh, that's what it is. Um, yeah. Bullrick! Captain Bay, this is a crisis, a large crisis. In fact, if you've got a moment, it's a 12-story crisis with a magnificent entrance hall carving <laughs> throughout, 24-hour portrait, and an enormous sign on the roof saying, this is a large crisis. <laughs> a large crisis requires a large plan. Get me two pencils and a pair of underpants. And cue mental collapse. Um, so, yeah, gender dysphoria is a bit of a bugger. Um, but what's it like to, to, to live with? One of the many complicated things when you experience this, um, from my perspective, is that it very quickly highlights a difference. A difference between feelings and thoughts. Why do I say that? I say that because the reason that I imploded the reason that I went from, if I say so myself, a capable, confident individual to a gibbering wreck with no decision-making capability is when I started to put a name to these feelings and symptoms, difficulties that I'd been experiencing over the years, I was faced with a conundrum because at that point in my life, I didn't fully buy in to 
a logical construct for transgender feelings. Right? So I had the reason that I imploded, if you like, is because of this thing called cognitive dissonance. What is that? Cognitive dissonance is a condition whereby you have two conflicting feelings about something or someone. For example, suffering from something that you don't believe in, uh, which is the position that I found myself in very interestingly. Or maybe it could be something else. It could be along the lines of liking somebody but disliking what they do or choose to do um, in life. So cognitive dissonance is a bit of a bugger and it can be a real challenge to unpick that. Um, Particularly when, in my case, the cognitive dissonance was around an identity issue and therefore <laughs> your confidence in all of your decisions before that point has suddenly been eroded because you're asking the question, who the hell am I? And you start to question the basis upon which you've built everything in your life. So this is why I had such a struggle. And uh, it's it's one of the major reasons why I started to fail professionally um, as well as personally, because I was I was functioning as a nurse at this point. So I'm trying to make decisions about other people and create that that reality um, when I didn't really know who I was. And I lost that empathy level for human beings because from a certain point of view, um, and this is a sort of realisation that's coming to me as I'm saying this, from a certain point of view, no one was really getting me. So I got, I guess, emotionally angry. There was an undercurrent of, of annoyance. It's like, basically, you, you, you're you're calm and collected on the outside, but on the inside, your, your brain is screaming, for fuck's sake, people, can you not see this? But of course, nobody can. So gender dysphoria is very much like that. It's it's like a it's like a two way mirror. You know those those mirrors you see in the the old seventies cop shows and stuff like this, um, where you can see through it. Well, perhaps you can't, and the others can, but only one of the the people in the conversation can actually see through this thing um, and get a clear picture. So so that's. I guess an analogy of, of what, what it was like during those early years um, of, of realisation, early years of realisation, as I say, when I was a kid, I was very, very typical. A lot of people assume, um, those that haven't lived with this, that everybody that's transgender will have known from an early age or whatever. It's quite, it's quite an often heard question of, so when did you know? And... The answer is I bloody didn't. <laughs> um, because why would you? Unless you are in a situation where you're exposed to something. You're exposed to an idea, a thought, a possibility. And you become aware of the fact that there are people like this in the world. You wouldn't have a frame of reference, you wouldn't have a context with which to qualify any feelings that you may have. So quite often, younger people 
adolescents, young adults, depending on where they've grown up in the world or what their social circle is like, uh, what cultures they're born into, they don't have that frame of reference. So they don't know. That doesn't mean they don't experience the feelings, but they don't know what to call them or how to deal with them or how to categorize them. And this is the situation I found myself in. Um, so now when we have young'uns coming out, and I say young'uns, I'm talking uh, you know below the age of 12, um, they're coming out and just going, well, this is me. The world is a different place nowadays. I have a couple of friends who are under the age of 30 um, who have transitioned and what have you. Um, as in, they're almost all the way through, so they started late, mid to late 20s. Um, that's still pretty late. It's considered pretty late in some senses. But from my point of view, my generation, I wish I'd done it at 25, believe me. Uh, part of me does. Part of me does. Because, like anything, it's a journey. It's a self-discovery thing. And there are some really, really great parts of my life that are an outcome of the fact that I figured this stuff out at 36. Not least of which is the fact that my daughter came into the world when I was 28, 29. So, um, and I wouldn't change that for the world at all. That is another thing, actually, as we're talking about this. Because of my background, my background being medical, I discounted the gender dysphoria stuff um, because I had a daughter. And normally, if someone is medically, genetically, or biologically inclined towards the intersex stuff, um, when I say inclined, I mean from a, from a genome sequencing point of view, um, if they're inclined in that direction, then it's usually the case that they're not able to have kids. And of course, I have a 14-year-old daughter, um, and there's no doubt that she's actually mine. Believe me, <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't say that she doesn't belong to me. So um, that kind of scuppered the kind of the medical version in my mind. However, things always change. New knowledge comes up, etc., etc., etc. And there's various cases, very very rare cases. I'll grant you, but cases where people have been found to have different karyotypes, i.e. genetic makeup, um, that is in one form or another um, part of this intersex phenomena within the human population, uh, but they've also had children, and it's like, well, hang on a minute then, so that's one of the things that I was absolutely thinking was a bar to me being transgender and or intersex, so... As, as I went through this process, I guess, there's kind of a perfect storm going on. One of a slow drip feed realisation of what this is and may be. And two, a change in the prevailing wisdom about what this stuff means. And being the scientific sort, um, I guess you could kind of say that the scientific stuff, when I delved into it again, almost gave me permission to go okay, this is cool, we can do this. And it's not just me being a nutter, yeah? Get me two pencils and a pair of underpants. Have you gone barking mad? Yes, George, I have. Cluck, cluck, jibber, jibber, my old man's a mushroom, etc. 
Go send a runner to tell General Meltridge that your captain has gone insane and must return to England at once. Something I was talking about earlier on with my family was a letter I got, a letter and a phone call actually that I got yesterday. Um, I transitioned, as in started to change all my gender stuff officially and publicly, etc. three years ago, July 2015. Um, so almost three years ago to the month. Yet yesterday I had a phone call and a letter addressed to the old version of me. Um, and now that doesn't particularly bother me. It's irksome. It's irritating because, you know, I've ticked all those boxes. I've, cle I've clearly changed all my details. Um, and when you get this stuff coming from various people, one, it shows that they haven't updated their processes, which is pretty bad. And two, it's just irritating. It's just irritating. I've gone through all this effort, people, to make this change. Please bloody notice. You know, if they don't notice it, you think, what's the point? So anyway, um, we had this letter turn up and everything. And uh, actually, there's a, there's a serious, for all I'm making light of it, uh, there's a serious point because three years down the line, I've got these, these little reminders happening infrequently, but, you know, at a fairly regular basis. Uh, for some people, um, that can be quite detrimental. That can be really, really damaging because their level of, of adaptation and acceptance of their former life, if you will, is different to me. Um, I've always taken the view that, you know, I lived half my life in one box and I'm going to live the second half of my life, roughly, in another box. And actually, the boxes are pretty arbitrary either way. So I'm still me. This is the thing. I'm still me. I'm still the, the, the same individual, although I'm older and I'm learning. So we're constantly changing and evolving as humans, just like anyone else does. Um, but I am still essentially me. That means that I bring my own problems and my own thoughts and my own positivity and my own abilities with me on this transitional journey. The transitional stuff is not a catch-all, let's transition and everything's going to be lovely and it's gardens and roses and all that, because nah, that doesn't work. Um, what else can I say about gender dysphoria? Um, I think the important thing um, there's two two bits that I, I need to say really is because I've transitioned from male to female in terms of the hormonal stuff so I'm taking stuff to inhibit the male stuff and I'm having patches um, to artificially give me estrogen which is the female stuff um, that's obviously because of the way we are genetically and biologically etc um, that's obviously changed a few things and as a result um, one of the things that I've noticed that I've been aware of is an emotional change. I've used this analogy a few times. Pre-transition it was like a 13 inch black and white television. That was the range of my emotional reactions. Not quite the emotional range of a teaspoon from Harry Potter but you know you get the picture. Um, a very small black and white fuzzy one. And pre-hormones uh, sorry, post-hormones, um, estrogen, etc. It's like IMAX, 8K, full HD, 20 foot tall, big widescreen of emotional reaction possibility. 
And that catches you off guard. That really does catch you off guard. Um, now, caveat to this, this is my experience um, and my perception of the experience as well. So it's going to be individual to me. But that's, that's the, the first sort of bit. The second bit is to say that the noise in my head from being the square peg in a round hole, yeah, and rattling around, has definitely, definitely diminished. Um, when I started on this journey, this change, this pattern of growth, whatever, um, a learning curve, there was a very definite end goal, or at least goal, not end goal, in that my intention was to make the space between my own ears a much nicer place to live. It had nothing to do with anatomy. It had nothing to do with sexuality. It had nothing at all to do with who I was attracted to or indeed what I enjoy. Um, so it very, very much for me was mapping my internal world. For some people, uh, they fixate on different things. They look at, you know, their physicality. They don't like their anatomy, don't like how the way they look, etc., etc. Now, I'm not saying I was immune to that because one thing that falls out of that is my history, my on-off history with training, physical training. I trained a lot in the military. I, I have, throughout my life, have run and cycled thousands of miles. And I would always notice a pattern. I would notice this pattern of, I would train, 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 I would get fit, etc. And I, I love being physically fit. I absolutely love it because, you know, why wouldn't you? You know, it's just brilliant. You can do so many things. It's things that life is just so much easier. Your brain works better. Physical fitness is something that everyone should aspire to, in my opinion. And I would get to a point and then it would tail off. I would just stop. And I never quite understood why. Um, and this would go in waves, fits of activity that might last months or years. And then there'd be a period of non-activity and I'd get fat again. And, you know, and looking back on it, um, once I started to piece this jigsaw together, I realized that actually what was happening was when I was training and I was getting fitter, I was also getting bigger, bulkier, more masculine, etc. And I wasn't really happy with that on an internal emotional level. Since transition, I have, by which I mean medical transition, taking the hormones, etc. Um, since that point and training in that way, the motivation has continued because the body changes that I'm seeing are in line with some whatever it might be pre-programming in my head. Um, so the motivational stuff is still there. Now, unfortunately, life has thrown me a, yet another curveball, which is that my left knee is caving in at 43 years of age. It's a bit tired. So I now can't cycle and can't run to the level I used to. Uh, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna switch my endurance sport from running and cycling through to something that is low impact on my knee, and that is swimming. Why am I mentioning this? If you think about what it takes to go swimming, swimming baths. It then takes either a pair of trunks or a swimming costume. And it then takes you to go into a swimming bath and get changed and get in the water. None of those things are particularly difficult unless 
you happen to live as a transgender individual, knowing that the minute you go into these very particular spaces within life, you're going to get some funny looks. Now, depending on how I organize my attire and whether I'm carrying too much weight or I'm relatively slim, I can look kind of androgynous, bordering on masculine, or I can end up looking relatively feminine in shape and presentation. And one of the things that probably will work against me is when I go into that pool, I'm not going to look like anything other than a fat middle-aged bloke. But the changes that have gone on in my chest area are going to then preclude me from wearing a pair of swimming trunks or a swimming box or swimming boxes, you know. So I'm going to have to have some form of swimming costume. Now, this is just a, a, a practicality issue. Um, it's like, right, go buy something and get yourself in the pool. But it actually took me maybe a month, two months, so eight weeks, because I had just thought, I can't go swimming, can't go swimming, because I've got this, this barrier, this barrier to me getting into the pool. And I love swimming. When I was a kid, I used to go swimming all the time. I, I, my family remind me quite often of a summer holidays where I went every single day on the summer holidays and I ended up getting a pair of shoulders on me like Duncan Goodhue. Um, if you're of the same generation as me, you'll know who that is. Um, particular swimmer of, of the day. Um, kind of the Michael Phelps of his day. So... This is just one little example of how the gender dysphoria stuff and being a transgender individual can just make your life a little bit difficult. Um, I have an age-related injury. I'm trying to keep my weight down. <laughs> Failed. Trying to now lose the weight that I couldn't keep off um, because I've had to switch sports. But the switching of the sport has some other connotations that kind of play against me. Um, why am I deciding that I'm going to do it anyway? Because I'm the sort of person that's going to go, if you'll pardon the phrase, fuck it, I'm just going to go for it and do it because, quite frankly, I don't want to spend the rest of my life fat. And if people are going to have an issue with it, we'll deal with that um, respectfully, purposefully, legally, however is appropriate. Um, and I'll just do my homework. I'm not going to go at a time where it's an all ladies swimming, for example, because that's just inviting controversy. Um, but I will probably go half six in the morning where there ain't gonna be many kids about and I can just get on with the swimming thing. I've got a, I've got a target in mind. I've got the, the idea that I'm gonna hit a certain number of lengths. It's only a 25 meter pool. So um, I have my target, my goal, my fitness things and I'm just going to stubbornly get on with them in an optimistic way and not really worry too much about what other people think. That's not a very easy thing to do for every transgender individual. And indeed, at the outset of this, it wasn't for me either. Um, massively, massively self-conscious. I can remember one incident where I went for a job interview. Lovely people, wonderful people, couldn't fault them 
um, it was actually for the civil service. I could not fault them in their procedures, their uh, approach to interviewing me. Um, I was just treated like any other candidate. Um, so no, no issues, you might think, except for the fact that I'd spent four hours prior to the interview worrying about their um, approach to the gender dysphoria stuff or the gender presentation worrying about what I was going to look like because here's the thing a lot of trans women will get vilified and say be told they will be told that they are you know um, very kind of airhead and only bothered by what they look like that's a very oversimplified version of events because if you are going into an environment where you want to make a good impression, the last thing you want to do is look like a clown. Um, you don't want to look like somebody that's not got your act together. Visual, non-verbal cues are massive in terms of those environments, professional and personal. So getting the right balance um, in terms of your presentation is important. Um, getting that wrong in terms of being a trans person is a damn sight easier. So there is an over emphasis on presentation in many cases. Now what I chose to, to wear for that particular interview was just a pair of black trousers, black top, and I think because it was winter I had a red scarf on and that was pretty much it. It was a very kind of businessy sort of attire. Um, but not knowing what I was walking into, I spent a mu much, much more emotional energy than I should have done on the presentation and what to do if, the what-if scenarios. What if they don't use the correct pronouns? What if they don't do this? What if they don't do that? And I didn't put my emotional energy and focus onto why I was there, which was to get the job. And that cost me the job, it cost me the interview, because, um, and I was aware of this halfway through, my preparation was not up to scratch. And I'm a person that's had high-profile interviews, landed high-profile jobs, I've been interviewed by panel before, breezed through it, no problems. I know the level of my own ability, and I know when something is interfering with that ability, and I'm dropping short as a result. So... That's another interesting insight to how an interview process can be adversely affected for someone with gender dysphoria. And it's not a lack of ability because people with gender dysphoria can do so many things, so many things. And in some ways they're very, very self-aware, but occasionally... It can bite them in the ass and cause employers to look at them and go, you haven't done your homework. Of course, we, I hadn't. I hadn't done my homework at that point. But when you're spending a lot of time wondering how the rest of the world is going to react to you and afraid of some of the reactions that I've had. I've had some very, very bad reactions. It has to be said in the lower end of the job market in terms of qualification. Um, where I've walked in and I've literally been met with stony glazed 
expressions, um, glowing references, great introductory letter. I walk through the door and, you know, the blank face says it all, even though they're very polite. Then you get a letter back saying, sorry, there's no, there's no further job or we're not offering you the job or it's an internal vacancy or whatever it may be. Some reason why suddenly there's no vacancy, even though you meet the criteria and you, you have, in, in the case of the job I'm thinking of, more than enough qualifications to walk into it. So there has been um, some pretty rough uh, interactions when people um, perceive you as a trans person and, and, and you know, judge from that that perspective so i guess that's two sides that's living with gender dysphoria and also living with the effects of having made the decision to transition um because who here's a question i'll leave you with a parting question who owns gender whose gender is it anyway gender is a two-way conversation a non-verbal conversation between two people and the difficulty comes when you have a transgender person who is ambiguous in their non-verbals and verbals um, and their own uh, perception of themselves doesn't always align with the judgment call of the observer sometimes I still get to refer to as a gentleman sometimes I still get referred to as um, him rather than her and in some cases in many cases this isn't disrespectful it's because it'll be my attire I've got a, a lo loose t-shirt on I've got a tracksuit top on or something like that and because of course I sound the way I do people are going to make snap judgments as to which box to place me in and if they get it wrong dependent on circumstances and what's occurring at the time I don't make an issue of it because I'm well aware that I am putting out there ambiguous gender markers as they were so that's a question to leave you with whose gender is it anyway that's enough for one podcast. I will leave you guys to ponder that one and I'll catch you next time. Um, until then, keep it stubbornly optimistic and just remember, if you change the way you look at things, you know what's going to happen. The things you look at will change. Bye for now, guys. Any more questions you want to ask? Wants us to get in the car. And go where? Fifty years from now, when you're looking back at your life, don't you want to be able to say you had the guts to get in the car?